there's another one that uh, that I really loved, and, and it's been getting a lot of traction just you know in the first couple months that I've been talking about it, which is something we call Innovation Envy. And Innovation Envy was this idea that there's so many companies that are like, oh man, Google has a ping pong table. We got to get some ping pong tables. And uh, you know, uh, Disney's doing hackathons. Let's go and do a hackathon. And it's all of this like reactive innovation that doesn't really have a strategic purpose. And the challenge when it comes to innovation is you can't just be innovative by copying something somebody else does and say, oh, you know, now I'm innovative, right? It's kind of like putting on the same shoes as, you know, as like Steve, Stephen Curry and thinking that you're going to be as good as he is. Like it doesn't work that way. And so this trend was kind of meant to describe that, to challenge a lot of these companies to think about innovation, not in terms of being a copycat, but in terms of like, how do we really think different about what we need to do, not just copy something that's working for somebody else. Are you going organic, keto, paleo, some type of diet for incredible performance? You want the healthiest foods delivered to your doorstep fast and easy? Well, you should check out today's show sponsor, Thrive Market, the best organic online grocery store in the States. They've got gluten-free lentils and breads, chemical-free cleaners, organic coconut milk, all at up to 50% off, delivered to your door with a subscription to Thrive Market's awesome online health store. Listeners get a bonus 25% off their first order, up to 20 bucks when you use our link, disruptors.fm thrive. Check it out. They've got just about everything at rock bottom prices for, for best in class quality, regardless of how you're eating. And I know I switch it up. I'm sure you guys do as well. Disruptors.fm slash thrive for more details. I spent all day today writing. I love coffee, but I hate jitters. I was at Starbucks and I'm a little bit bouncing off the walls. That's why I'm pumped to tell you guys about today's show sponsor, Four Sigmatics Lion's Mane Blend. If you haven't tried Lion's Mane or the other awesome mushrooms that this Finnish company is putting out there, I definitely recommend it. Between the podcast, books, startup coaching, and life as a dad, I need to be switched on and creative in a big way. And Four Sigmatics proprietary blend, it's got only 40 milligrams of caffeine for creative, natural, drug-free productivity to power your day without the crash, side effects, or addiction. And you know what? The flavor, it's awesome. Listeners, if you go to disruptors.fm slash FS, you'll save 10% off anything from Four Sigmatic. They've got some incredible superfood blends. I recommend checking out their Four Mushroom blend as well. And you know what? You'll get free shipping anywhere in the US. Again, that's disruptors.fm slash FS. Use offer code disruptors to save 10% and to take it to the next level. Tim Ferriss recommends this to everybody. Jonathan Levy, one of the awesome guests we had, our Superhuman Academy all-star, he loves it as well. And it's powering elite performers like you everywhere. Welcome to The Disruptors, the podcast about the future of all of us, where we look at the technologies, trends, and societal norms shaping our collective future. Here, the world's top minds share their insights and predictions on the convergence, direction, and ethics of exponential technologies transforming life as we know it. You can learn more and stay up to date at disruptors.fm. Sometimes it's easy to see the future that's coming. More often, it's easy to get caught up in the past and assume arrogantly that we understand what will happen. This is what happens with companies, what happens with futurists, and what happens as all of us really looking backwards walk into the future. We can't really see what's happening. Well, today's guest looks at the non-obvious stuff and how businesses, corporations, and governments can really prep for that. His name's Rohit Bhargava. He's an innovation and marketing expert and Wall Street Journal bestselling author of five books on a range of topics focused on the future. He's got the best-selling brand Non-Obvious, which he's updated now year after year on 15 of the new and most interesting trends that people can look forward to each and every year. He's keynoted in 32 countries and for organizations including Intel, NASA, Disney, JP Morgan, LinkedIn, Microsoft, and hundreds more. Outside of consulting, he teaches a popular course at Georgetown on storytelling and marketing. His background may be marketing, but all of the skills, tips, and tricks that he has comes into effect when looking at the economy, business, and technology as a whole. So I know that you guys are going to enjoy this one. Today, we'll discuss the importance of likability and why it actually trumps competence. What are the non-obvious technologies and trends of 2019? Why Rohit thinks Facebook will be broken up and likely fall? Ways to fight fake news and why it may just be impossible? Which monopoly scares Rohit the most today? And how Trump may have changed politics forever? Now, without further ado, I give you Rohit Bhargava. 
We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. I wanted to I wanted to welcome you to the program. You've got a real interesting background, both in terms of what you've done in the past and what you're doing now. So for a quick 30,000 foot view for listeners, can you briefly summarize who is Rohit? Yeah, it's uh, so I uh, have been a marketing guy for much of my career. I spent a long time in marketing agencies leading like brand strategy and just thinking about like how to be persuasive and how to tell better stories. And uh, about nine years ago, I started doing an annual report, uh, a trend report. And uh, initially, I just did it as a blog post. It turned into a presentation, then it kind of went viral, eventually turned into a book. Uh, The book became a bestseller. And now every year I do an annual update for the book. So it's called Non-Obvious. And it's partially about trends. And it's partially about what does it take to be a non-obvious thinker. And so that's what I dedicate most of my time to trying to help teach people and and, uh, engage them with. What does it mean to think in non-obvious ways? Because if it was obvious, everyone would be doing it. Do you remember some of the some of the <laughs> early early predictions and trends you had? Um, yeah, I do. Uh, they were they were very marketing centric, uh, and I kind of broadened out the lens over time. So now I talk a lot more about like culture and sort of what's happening around us, as opposed to like what was the best marketing campaign. You know, so that's kind of like it started started off sort of small and in my industry. And over time, it's sort of evolved. So it's interesting to look at like what I did back then versus what I'm doing now. And that's an important thing for people's career. When people get stuck in this job that they do forever, it's just not the world we're living in. And it just leads to people that aren't overall all that happy. Yeah. And, and for me, it's, uh, this has kind of been this nice sort of thing that happens every year because I get to go backwards and say, well, what was I looking at? And what was I thinking about a year ago? And then there's a lot of retrospection that happens too. Because every year the book has this really detailed appendix that grades all the previous trends. And so a lot of times what happens is people who are like, call themselves futurists, right? They just predict stuff. And then if somebody's like, look, did you ever get anything right? They'll only ever say like, either yes or not yet. You know, I was ahead of my time, but like, it'll be right eventually. And that's such bullshit. Like, you know, people get stuff wrong. And so there's a lot of transparency in the model that we try and put out there to say, look, this was right. This was maybe not so well predicted, and this is why. And that's super important. There was this old scam that finance guys used to do. They would basically split test their predictions. Apple will go up tomorrow. They'd send that to half the people. Apple will go down tomorrow. Then the next day, they would say, Microsoft will go up. Microsoft will go down. So automatically, you have 25% thinking, oh my God, this guy's a genius. And it just <laughs> continuously iterates. And there is that, there is that, especially today. There's so much fake news, so to speak, but there's a lot of, there's yeah. a lot of fake predictions as well. What are you looking at this year? What's got you excited? So, you know, uh, the lens that, that I eventually came to, which is, I think, given me a lot of flexibility to think about the world in, in many stages, is that I, I break it out into a bunch of different categories. So culture and consumer behavior is like one category. And then marketing is another category. And technology and design is like another category. And media is a different category. So I've got these different categories. So when I think about the trends, I can actually think about them in relation to like, is this changing our culture and like how we think? Or is it changing like the way that we do business? So like one of the cultural ones that's got me really interested this year was all about masculinity and how the way we see masculinity shifting. And each one of these trends has a a sort of brand on it in terms of how, like the word that I use to describe it. So the masculinity one, um, I called muddled masculinity because it was all about the question that's happening now of like, what does it mean to be a man today? And how is that changing from what it was before? And what does that mean for like the role of men in in education, in entertainment, and in business too. And that becomes especially interesting as we start to automate the, the left-brained logical jobs. It's interesting though, if you look at the science of it, so how it works with uh, the combination of your chromosomes from your parents, you get an X and women are XX, men are XY. So if you were to have babies, if you're a girl, then you'd get an X from each side. But if you're a boy, you only get a Y from your dad. So over time, they've noticed that the chromosomes, the actual length, is deteriorating in men. So you could argue men are becoming mess- less manly just from a biological sense as well. Well, from a cultural sense too. Definitely I mean, from a cultural sense. Yeah. I mean, the divisions between like, what does it mean to like be a male or be masculine? Or like, there's a bunch of these social psychologists that are thinking about and talking about like feminine qualities versus male qualities, not associated with like men or women. So like some men have more feminine qualities and therefore they have like more emotional intelligence. They're able to you know, interact with people in a more um, empathetic way. And some women are have more masculine 
you know, domination, uh, being a more aggressive, like the tendencies that have been commonly associated with men, they have more tendencies towards that, right? And this conversation is a perfect way to get ourselves in trouble with someone who wants to get offended about something for whatever reason. <laughs> That's something that you've been seeing a lot. I know um, you wrote a book, Likeonomics, or something similar, where you looked at the, the rise of social media and how it's changing us and changing society. That was a few years ago. What did you see then and how much has things changed? Yeah, you know, Likeonomics was an interesting uh, moment in my trajectory because I had written, it was my second book. And my first one was about what I felt like was a big idea out there, which is brands need to be more human. And so I wrote this whole book called Personality Not Included, which was all about why personality needs to be part of business, but it's not given to you. Kind of like the batteries not included, like, you know, you need them, but you don't have them. So what do you do? And when I got to Likeonomics, I started by writing a book about social media. And of course, like, you know, the like button, we all know that. And what it ended up becoming, which was really interesting, was it ended up becoming this book about uh, why it's important to be likable. And so it became much more like a sales-oriented book about how to be likable and how to be persuasive because people like you, as opposed to social media. And that was really interesting because that's not kind of the premise I started with, right? But it's the, it's the premise we all kind of get to because it, at the very least, social media tries to mimic that, even though it does a god-awful, piss-poor job of it. I know you, you've talked about the four different types of people, I believe I was listening to one of your talks in terms of likable, successful. Can you go through that criteria a little bit and what you learned? Yeah, you know, I um, I spent uh, a bunch of time, you know, when I came up with this premise that, you know, likable people are more successful, right, was the, was the idea. And I realized if I just put that out there without any sort of proof, I'd have all sorts of skeptics being like, well, what about the successful asshole, right? I mean, we're surrounded by them in many places. And so I had to come up with uh, some, some research and I had to go and find some research. And the research that you're mentioning, I think, was a bunch of this research put in, um, and there's a study actually done by a group from Harvard and another university partnered together that said that people prefer, when, the, when you ask them, they think they want to work with someone who is highly competent, even though they're an asshole. So basically the axis was competency and likability. And if you were low likable, but highly competent, then you were basically like an incompetent, a competent jerk, right? So you know what you're doing, but you're kind of a jerk. And then the opposite was the incompetent, you know, likable person and nobody wanted like, you know, that person either. But the question was like, if you had somebody who was like super competent and a jerk or, you know, not that competent, but really, really nice, what would you pick? And most people said, well, I'll just pick the competent jerk because I got to get the job done, right? But when they actually watched what people did, people tended to gravitate towards the ones that they liked, not the ones who were highly competent. They preferred the working relationship versus the competency. And so the whole point of that research was to say that we undervalue how much our personal connection matters to the people who we work with in that workplace environment. Or we undervalue how much our hatred of our boss makes us want something different. How do you, how do you <laughs> categorize research like that? How do you find that? And how do you do it without totally screwing it up? You know, the good and bad thing about research, and this is why I use it strategically, but not exclusively, is because you can find research to support pretty much anything that you want to say. Especially if you're willing to fund it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that happens all the time, right? And so you have that. And then you have this like inconclusive, conclusive research where it's like the majority of people think this. And if you go to the research, it's like 51% of people said that. And you're like, dude, I guess that's a majority like mathematically, but really it's kind of 50-50 if you really think about it, right? So like a lot of the research is kind of based on nothing. So instead, like when I go through this process of looking at trends and curating ideas and doing what I call trend curation, not trend spotting, but trend curation, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to take this practice of collecting ideas and saving them the same way most people save frequent flyer miles, uh, which is you collect them and then eventually you cash them in and use them for something. And so for me, the currency is really stories. And if you get better at collecting many stories and you put the pieces together, you can kind of weave what's actually happening in the world, as opposed to looking at numbers in a spreadsheet where it's 51% or 49% or whatever. But let's play devil's advocate. If we want to play the stories game, I can go find one single person in the US who was killed by an MS-13 gang and use that as the reason to build a wall because the stats are ridiculously not relevant and incredibly one-sided, but yeah, you can find a story to support anything. Yeah, you can. The challenge is uh, having enough of a diversity of stories where when you look at them in aggregate, it's actually pointing towards something. Because you're right, a lot of times what people will do is they'll say, you know, 
so many people in my immediate vicinity seem to be buying 3D printers. So I'm going to say that the trend is every household by 2019 is going to have a 3D printer in their house, which is not true and not even close to true. But if you just look at like this one little microcosm, you'd be like, totally true, right? So the challenge when it comes to the stories is you have to find enough diversity across industries, across countries, where it's pointing to something that's happening that's broader and bigger. And that's not that easy to do. It's not. And it's got to be hard to find a lot of trends as well. What are some of the other interesting ones for this year? Uh, there's another one that, uh, that I really loved, and, and it's been getting a lot of traction just you know, in the first couple of months that I've been talking about it, which is something we call Innovation Envy. And Innovation Envy was this idea that there's so many companies that are like, oh man, Google has a ping pong table. We got to get some ping pong tables. And uh, you know, uh, Disney's doing hackathons. Let's go and do a hackathon. And it's all of this like reactive innovation that doesn't really have a strategic purpose. And the challenge when it comes to innovation is you can't just be innovative by copying something somebody else does and say, oh, you know, now I'm innovative, right? It's kind of like putting on the same shoes as you know, as like Steve, Stephen Curry and thinking that you're going to be as good as he is. Like it doesn't work that way. And so this trend was kind of meant to describe that, to challenge a lot of these companies to think about innovation, not in terms of being a copycat, but in terms of like, how do we really think different about what we need to do, not just copy something that's working for somebody else. The problem is a lot of times they have to kill themselves to do that. They've <laughs> got to be willing to sacrifice most or all of what they have to save the ship, so to speak. You know, um, sometimes, yeah, there's like a huge land sea change. Sometimes it's really um, the willingness to carve out a piece of what they're doing and let someone try something that's totally different. And if it works, replicate it fast, right? Because the thing that, particularly when you think about large companies, right? Like it's easy to think, well, they are at a huge disadvantage because they're big and slow, right? They can't move that fast. But the thing that a large company could do much easier than a small startup is scale because they already have scale. The challenge is like, what do you scale and how do you actually put it through that, that process so that it doesn't die because 30 people had to approve it before it actually saw the light of day? The other, the other risk not, isn't just the 30 people. It's also when they come up with something and that something will directly compete with the existing business, although later surpassing it, like Kodak invented the digital camera and then just tried to hide it and hope that no one noticed. Yeah, but you know, you see like there's a ton of examples of that happening already, right? I mean, look at like Hoover, the vacuum cleaner brands, like they all launched bagless vacuums while they had vacuums with bags, right? Netflix started doing streaming while they were still shipping out DVDs. Um, there's all of these examples of like companies who are like DirecTV's got a streaming service and a cable service at the same time. So like they're all hedging their bets in a in a really interesting way. I mean, I just did an event for um, De Beers, uh, the big jewelry manufacturer. Uh, diamond miner, right? And like they mine diamonds in South Africa and they just acquired a synthetic diamond company. I've right? heard they, some people that are skeptical about that. I've heard some people that say they want to drive the price down and make them seem less valuable than real diamonds. That is obviously what they want to do, right? I mean, that's the point. The point is like, if you can take a synthetic diamond company and make it so that those diamonds are just for earrings, like the biggest challenge is you don't want synthetic diamonds to become the diamond for an engagement ring because that will under, you know, that will kill that whole business, which is the most profitable business. Like that's what most jewelers care about, right? They sell you the engagement ring, that's thousands and thousands of dollars. The $50 or $100 earring is not that meaningful. It's the engagement ring they all want. And that's what should have real diamonds. So it's a perfect strategic move for them. Now, you can be skeptical about their ulterior motive. I get that. But it's a smart move. But isn't it, the, isn't it the lack of innovation? It's not they're trying to create, and I know this is tough because you just worked for them. They're not trying to create innovation. If anything, they're trying to prevent it through, it. for instance, the same thing that Facebook did by acquiring uh, Instagram or what they wanted to do with Snapchat. They weren't necessarily that interested with the innovation. They just wanted to prevent a competitor from gaining a foothold. That might be part of it. I mean, I see it more. I don't know that they are, maybe they're preventing it from getting too far upstream. Um, so I think it's more about controlling it as opposed to preventing it. Like I, there is a market for synthetic diamonds. Like people want them. They know that they're conflict-free. I mean, that market isn't just going to go away just because De Beers bought a company. So the challenge for them is like, how do we, it's kind of like what politicians do when they're messaging, right? If you can cast your opponent as believing in something, then you control the whole narrative. And that's what they want to try and do, right? It's like a PR 
strategy, which is like, if we tell you what this is for, we control what you think. And that's kind of the intent, right? I mean, it's, uh, it's not, you know, maybe, you know, 100% above board, but it does make sense. Oh, definitely. It's, it's super dangerous, though. It's so I mean, it, it was Trump calling Hillary uh, a lizard from the sewers or whatever. And yeah. Creating, creating these type of narratives. And it's the same thing that you see in totalitarianism, totalitarian regimes everywhere. They don't necessarily try to just put out one narrative. You put out all of them so that it's confusing. Putin's, Putin's a master of it. And it's getting worse and worse with social media. How do we deal with something like that? Yeah, I mean, Trump is a, is a master of that too, right? And I think that there, there's, only, there's only one way to deal with, with that, which is you have to uh, intentionally seek out diversity of um, reporting, diversity of opinions. You can't take it from one source. You have to be skeptical. And so one of the things that I try and teach people about is that this bias is baked into a lot of these um, sites and these platforms. And the problem is that the algorithm is feeding you the same thing that you already agree with. And so whatever you agree with, the algorithm will just show you more of that. And it'll convince you that anybody who doesn't think like you must be stupid. And that is not really true but it creates division. And the more division there is between us, the more the people at the top win because people don't aggregate together and say, hey, this is crap. We're not going to stand for this anymore, right? It's a classic divide them so that they don't attack us leadership strategy, which I think you're seeing all over the world. And social media, to your point before, has been a big enabler of that. And that's a huge problem. And so one of the things that I challenge people to do is look, get your media away from social media and away from personalization. Because the thing that like, is fascinating for me, but a lot of people don't realize that when I search for something on Google, and when you search for something on Google, we see different results. They think we see the same thing. And then they wonder in their head, like, how can you think what you think when we're receiving the same stuff, when we're actually not seeing the same stuff? And so one of the things I do a lot is I tell people like, go to, for example, go to a bookstore and pick up a magazine. Because when you pick up a magazine and I pick up a magazine, we see the same magazine. There's no personalization allowed in that, right? And so what it allows you to do is see media in a singular way as opposed to a personalized, slightly shifted, uh, biased way. Now, that could still be biased. But the point is, if you'd see that enough, you're going to see things that you're not supposed to see according to the algorithm. And that's important. But are people strong enough to deal with that on their own? I would argue that most of them aren't. You know, I think they need to be reminded. It's the same thing as food and nutrition, right? I mean, you kind of know in your head that you shouldn't have a Snickers bar, but you're going to kind of do it because it tastes good and um, it reinforces something, right? And I think that if people can find willpower to change their diet, which they're doing, um, and some people don't, some people do. I think media and the media diet is the same way. Um, I think that if we are reminded and if we understand how toxic it is to read certain things or to continue down one path, people will start to to change. Because no one wakes up in the morning thinking, like, what can I be outraged about today? Right? It's not a good feeling for humans. It, it's not, but it's also a kick. So, like, I think your metaphor is good. I think it's lacking in one area. I think if we had universal healthcare where you eating the Snickers bar and getting a ton of weight directly led to me having to pay extra for your healthcare. But it, it, we don't have that system. But in government, we do have that system. So, if I'm dealing with a bunch of idiots... And I'm doing my best, but they're not. They're directly and indirectly affecting me. Does that mean we have to have the ability to force something on people? So for instance, governments could regulate, you can't have more than 40 grams of sugar in a can of soda. Do we have to regulate that people cannot have X type of personalization in their, in their content preferences? Because people won't opt for it and businesses won't opt for it. And usually when that happens, you need some type of intervention. We might. I mean, we're already seeing signs that that might be the direction because I think a lot of people and a lot of governments are frustrated with how much power the social media sites have to shape perception and to shape opinion. Um, and they're not able to police their platforms in such a way that prevents the evil people from taking that uh, bias and using it to their benefit. And so we've seen that in like the Philippines, you see it in South America, you saw it in the last US election. What's happening is this, this kind of prevailing culture and the politicians that we get aren't actually reflecting what people want. They're just reflecting one group of people who game the system and win. And, and I think that that is something that people are getting wiser to now. Um, and so I do see a lot of people trying to find ways of changing that. 
And a big part of it is going to come down to limiting the power that some of these platforms have. Do you see Facebook or Google being broken up in any significant way in the next five years? Facebook, yeah, because they have too many high-profile screw-ups. And even if they're not broken up governmentally, I think that there's a lot of people who are declaring their frustration with Facebook with their behavior. So using Facebook less, you know, segmenting it to like one compartment. So like you're already seeing young people who look at Facebook as like, if I want to post something and share it with grandma, then I'll go to Facebook. But that's the- But they're switching to Instagram. Yeah, sometimes, but even then they're abandoning Instagram. If you look at their behavior on Instagram, like they're not- they're not saving their, like the, one of the most interesting things with, with a lot of young people is they're deleting all of their old stuff, right? So they, on Instagram, they only have their last three or four photos. So there's no archive of data and Instagram's desperate to keep that archive of data. So now they created this whole feature that says, Hey, just, you know, if you don't want it to show, just archive it, but keep it on. Don't delete it because they don't want to lose the access to all of this data. Do you think an open source solution would be basically, let's say, Linus Torvald or whoever decides to go and create something. And it's just an auto deleter. You can download it. It's a Chrome extension. It goes through Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and just you set your frequency. It kills everything there for you because people won't do it on their own. But if you have a system to do it, that could work. It doesn't necessarily have to make money. I'm, I'm pretty sure there is stuff like that already, right? I mean, there's um, like DuckDuckGo, for example, as a browser is like it has a, like a fire button. So like every time you finish your session, you can press the fire button, it deletes everything. It's hard. The results are so much worse. I was using it for a while and then I eventually quit and I went back to Google and then I decided to use Bing so that at least I didn't have everything in one single silo. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's the other thing that people are starting to do, right? They're using VPNs. They're using like, I mean, people are figuring out workarounds that used to be, you used to be, you have to be like a super technical person to do some of this stuff. But now like people are worried. And when they're worried, they look for solutions. Are we closer to Brave New World or 1984? Media, I'd say 1984. But like startup and entrepreneur wise, and like the tech revolution, I think Brave New World. So it's, it's both. I think that the challenge is going to be getting past the hurdle of information. Like the way we get information and the information we do get is highly toxic. Oops, sorry about that. Uh-oh. No worries. It's information. <laughs> And, uh, and that's a problem. And I don't see a great solution for that problem yet. I want to take a quick time out to plug today's show sponsor, Brand Crowd. This is the company that allows you to easily create a logo for any design, brand, or business. If you go to disruptors.fm slash brand crowd, that's brand crowd, the two words. It's pretty easy, and it's almost as easy as their service. You put in whatever brand name you want, and they'll generate tons of automatic logos for you. Some of them will be great. Some of them you won't be so keen on. Not a problem. You're not paying for anything until you find the solution that you love for your business. You get it. And then you're off to the races. Disruptors.fm slash brand crowd for more details. And now back to the program. You kind of have the US who's basically saying, just go for free for all. And then you have Europe saying, let's go back and kind of make things ridiculously hard for everybody. Is there a better middle ground? Because GDPR kind of locks in that existing players and makes it almost impossible for anyone else to play ball. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, don't, I haven't seen a great middle ground. I think that the, the best solution I have seen is for us as a culture to invest more time, effort, and resources into teaching people what it means to be media literate and teaching them how to channel their skepticism towards becoming smarter as opposed to just becoming skeptical right? Because you can have, take skepticism and you can just become like a cynic. Or you can take your skepticism and turn it into something healthy and say, look, I'm going to be hungry for finding out what the truth is. And I'm going to translate that hunger into going off to better sources and getting more of a different perspective. And when I see a story that seems like it might be crap, I'm going to go and search for the alternative. I'm going to put those pieces together and I'm going to actually create an informed opinion, right? Now that's extra work and people are lazy. But if we can teach them the importance of doing that, then I think we can make a difference in how this media that's out there gets internalized by the people who see it. Mm-hmm. It's fake news. It's just not the fake news that you're hearing about as fake news. In terms, yeah. <laughs> in terms- yeah, and if you take enough, um, you know, if you take enough fake stuff from enough places and figure out what to dismiss, like maybe you can figure out what to actually believe, right? I think so. We also have the confirmation bias though, because we're looking to. We're automatically, if we see something else, we're more likely to believe the one that we already believe anyways, because it's easier. Yeah, I know. 
Um, it's hard. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's very hard, but there are, um, you know, there are people who are able to change their mind. You know, there are people who are able to say, you know, what I thought about this, like the things that I agree with, like maybe they're not always right. You know, and one of the examples I've used, which is, uh, which I um, personally appreciate because I've always kind of been, I mean, I'm a, I'm a city guy, you know, like I've always lived in a city. I have never li- really lived in a rural area. I've been surrounded by, you know, uh, city stuff. And I think one of the big divides that we see, not only in this country, but in many countries, is the divide between city people and uh, rural people. Uh, they don't understand each other. And so they assume that the other one is is out to get them. And for a long time, I was around a lot of people who were like, well, you know, the people who aren't in the cities, they're not educated. They don't see people who are diverse the way that we do. They don't have easy access to lattes. Like, you know, they don't have all this stuff that we're, that we're used to. But then you look at like, if you look at any dystopian movie, like you look at Hunger Games or Divergent or like any of those, they all have the same story, which is the city people are the bad guys. They're the ones who are trying to impose their will upon the rural people. And the rural ones are the heroes. They're the ones who are fighting back. They're the ones who are like, you know, righteous. And but when I thought that's about that's because they're the weak. That's because they're the weak ones that we always like to root for the underdog. Uh, maybe, uh, but also it's that they're being like someone's imposing what they believe on them, right? And telling them that they need to stay down. They need to just do the work, and all the wealth is going to flow to that that the metropolis, right? And there are signs of that, like like happening in the real world where it's like all the wealth is flowing through to the stocks and to the investments and to like that whole apparatus, right? The wall street apparatus and the people who are like doing stuff with their hands, the people are creating food, right. Or creating like materials or making stuff are undervalued. Um, And that's the same thing that's happening in a lot of these stories that's creating these uprisings. The interesting thing is in each one of those stories, like the protagonist that we identify with is not the city. It's the, heroes who are making stuff. It's the heroes who are, you know, getting the food. That's really interesting, right? Because that challenges your perspective a little bit. It says, wait a second, am I, am I part of polis, right? Am I like, you know, um, getting fat off of somebody else? I'm working on a dystopian sci-fi book right now. And I just realized that it has both of those themes. If you guys go to disruptors.fm slash book or slash free, it's one or the other, then you can put in your email address and get the first five chapters free. And it should be working on getting an agent now. But it's uh, it is it is very true. But I think part of that's also part of that's also if you look at where progress happens. So uh, you could kind of argue that progress and conservation are are inverse in terms of the direction they are and the direction they want to go or stay. And cities and metropolises are very much focused on the future, whereas rural areas seem to be much more focused on the past. And we, yeah, we're living in an exponential era where. The past is slower and the future is faster so that the wealth gains and everything's going to be disproportionate. Yeah. And I think that there is a bias for, I mean, when you say that, I immediately think, well, we should head towards the future, right? But if you think about like some of the benefits of the past, right? Like in the past, we had 18 different types of apples and they all tasted different, you know? Um, In the past, we had the ability to not be stuck on our phones and to have human connection and to actually talk to people face to face. I mean, there are some things that are the past, which I think a lot of people, city or rural, are kind of desperate to get back to, right? Like they would love to have like this chemical-free type of uh, diet, or they would love to have a little bit less of the always-on technology and a little more of the let's just talk to each other and play a board game, right? Definitely agree. There, there's the best of both worlds from both sides, and that's the problem is people don't like to differentiate. Yeah. Yeah, so, they, don't, they don't know how to either, right? So you said you grade yourself on your predictions in the past. What are some of the ones that you thought were going to happen that you just totally missed on? And what were some of the ones you never saw coming? So uh, when I do the grading, it's not kind of me looking backwards and saying, hey, was I right or wrong? It is uh, partially it's by team, but it's also like we do a lot of like I do a lot of speaking at events and I do a lot of workshops um, in front of groups. And one of the things we're always doing is evaluating the past trends and looking at what people associate with and and, you know, a lot of times they ask interesting, provocative questions, right? I mean, they're, they're really smart people. And when we get those, we start to reevaluate, like, does this trend actually reflect today? So there's been some that I predicted, like, way back in the beginning that were very marketing-oriented that kind of reflected, like, a bunch of marketing uh, campaigns. So there was one that, that I loved at the time that I did it, and we called it Pointillist Marketing. And it was all about how there were all these marketing campaigns that were, like, 
creating lots of user-generated content and then using each one of those contents, kind of like that mosaic that has like lots of pictures that make one big picture. So there were, they, that was the intent of it, right? So it was kind of like a pointillist painting, like each thing was a point. And when you brought it all into aggregate, like it was something really cool. And it seemed like that was going to be like the future of culture. Like everything was consumer generated. If you remember like the Super Bowl at one point had like five ads that were like created by consumers and the ad agencies were all like, oh my God, we're not going to make the ads anymore. It's just going to be consumers making all the ads. What are we going to do? And they were panicking. And then that kind of went away. Like, I mean, the last several Super Bowls, like there's no consumer generated ads because people realized that they weren't that good. <laughs> like that was part of it. And also it was just like, the, it was one thing that was happening at one time but it didn't really kind of transform the way that media was put together. So that was one example where it seemed like it was going to take off and then, you know, kind of fizzled. Yeah. No one wants to always be kind of, I mean, I don't really wear clothes with brand stuff on it because I don't really want to be someone else's billboard. And most people feel the opposite, but in terms of putting in the extra effort for that kind of stuff, it doesn't make a ton of sense. Yeah. I think um, there's a role for, for that. And, and at the end of the day, I mean, what, what, smart brands, especially in retail, have done really well as they tap into our sense of identity, right? And when they do that, and you, your identity becomes something that is reinforced by whatever that brand is, then you're like, okay, I'm going to wear that. Because when I put on a Patagonia jacket, um, I'm demonstrating something about what I believe to the world. I'm surprised they don't have... Oh, go ahead. Yeah, no. And that's kind of, that's always been an element of why people believe in brands. I'm surprised they don't have like a Starbucks in every Apple store at this point. (laughs) <laughs> but uh marketing marketing's changing a lot. What are what are some of the things you see coming with AI and the voice or Alexa type technologies? So one of the trends that uh, that I wrote about in the in the new 2019 edition of the book was something we called artificial influence. So still using the same acronym AI but artificial influence. And that was all about this growing use of characters as a way to engage customers. So you look at like Hatsune Miko in uh, Japan who's this animated character that's not real, but she's so influential that she actually has real live concerts and people come and listen to her uh, perform with like real casts behind her, even though she's holographic. So there's more and more like situations like that where we see influence being created through characters or through these models, right? And so that's what is really, really interesting about influence itself, which is we used to be influenced based on like either who somebody was or what they said, but they were real. And now it's like influence can be created. Well, it's kind of just an extension of the Kardashian deal. They're totally created. If you look at the people that are doing a lot of the influence, they fake it all. Yeah. Yeah. We've we've seen that a lot with social media too. Yeah. And what they're, you know, and a lot of people say, well, they're famous for doing nothing. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But I don't believe that. I mean, I think they're famous for being comfortable with sharing this like intimate part of their lives that most people aren't. I mean, they live their lives in public more than actors, more than politicians, more than really anyone else. And they create a fan base, not only because they're attractive, right? I mean, some people are like, okay, they're just good looking. So of course, you're going to follow them because you know you might get a nice picture. But that's not it, right? It's not just the attractiveness. It's also this willingness for someone to put themselves out there and say, look, this is me here. This is me at all these different places in my life. And this is what I'm doing. And they're oversharing to a degree that gives you this real true sense of who they are as a person. And that's not, that's not easy to do because you really do put yourself out there and there's haters and there's people who are mean and there's you know all of that stuff, right? They have to deal with all that stuff to a viral level that most of us would never have to. And that's how they live their lives. And some people are able to do that and they build a fan base because of it. It would be miserable to be famous. What, uh, what, what technologies or trends are you most worried about outside of the ones we've talked about so far? I think that uh, a lot of facial tracking is pretty worrying because of how easy it is to take video recorders and sensors and make them really, really small. And if you combine the tininess of technology with the sophistication of facial tracking, it really does open up the door for lots and lots of like spy type of situations where like they can tell where you are based on your face. You have access to all of your, I mean, this whole database of like, I don't even know how many pictures I've posted of myself, right? Or there's been pictures of me online. But if it was aggregated to me, like any database could take probably thousands of photos of my face and get a really good picture of what my face looks like based on an aggregate of all those. And with facial tracking, now you would be able to tell like where I am, what I'm doing. You could target to me. You say, hey, you know, we saw that you were at uh, Best Buy yesterday. Um, 
how about this, right? So it's not just based on your behavior anymore. It's based on like where you actually go. And that's, that's worrying. Like that, that really is concerning. And they can also tell if you're gay and if you like Pepsi and if you want, if you like sports and know more things about you than you've ever known about yourself. It's, uh, yeah. it's, it's terrifying in a lot of ways. Yeah. I mean that uh, for sure. And then just as an author and as uh, someone who, you know, also runs a publishing company, I'm really worried about the monopoly that Amazon has over how we buy anything because, you know, all of the dangers of anyone having a monopoly are, are happening with Amazon, right? They can set the price. They can create a discount to be whatever they want. They can create predatory models where like you end up as a creator making little to no money and they have the entire relationship. You don't have any customer data. You don't know who's buying your stuff. You don't know any of that stuff because they do all of it on their end. Um, and so I very intentionally try and like this past uh, holiday season, I tried an experiment where I purchased nothing from Amazon. I had my list of stuff that I wanted to get, and I wanted to see if it was easy and the same price and the same speed to get it either from places close to me or from everywhere else. And it was. You could do it. And really? I don't think you could, but I could get the exact same price for everything on my list. I could get it in some cases faster because I went to a store and got it, and I live in a place where there's lots of stores around. Um, oh, faster in terms of time, but I imagine a lot slower in terms of overall effort. Well, not really. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, like I'm already going and picking up my kid from school. And if the store is two minutes from there and, you know, there's a great, like, for example, I bought a bunch of stuff from a local store called Micro Center um, that has an online reservation system. So basically I can go and I can choose the product, put it in my cart and they'll hold it for me uh, within 30 minutes. And I can go there and I can just pick it up and pay for it. So I don't even have to shop around. I could just walk in, buy it and walk out with it. Right. So there are a lot of options for buying the exact same thing. You, you don't have to just have the one click and buy it on Amazon. I think that the thing that they've done really well is they've made it brainless for us, brainless and painless. And so it's like, oh, I need to buy something. Let me just press one button and buy it on Amazon. Ironically, the one thing that was very hard to find anywhere but Amazon was books because nobody had the stock. And when they were shipping them, like nobody had like the free model and even Barnes and Noble, like it was, it was harder to do. That was the one thing that I had a challenge with. Elect electronics, retail stuff, clothing, like everything else, super easy to buy everywhere but Amazon. Okay, I would, I would probably disagree and say Amazon's easier. The, uh, the Amazon basic stuff is scary as well. I would, my, my old business yeah. was, was Amazon, and they're just ripping people out and putting themselves as number one. Yeah, and in some cases, like they're taking third-party sellers and putting them in for products. So then the maker of the product isn't even the, they don't even own the buy box, right? So there's, there's all sorts of, I mean, if you're a seller on Amazon, you know what all the issues are. So because of that, I thought, well, as a consumer, let me see if I can wean myself off of this, right? Now, do I still buy stuff from Amazon? Yeah, I do. But I didn't have to buy 100% of the stuff that I wanted on Amazon. And that's what I probably would have done last year if I wasn't intentional about it. I would just be like, I'll buy it all on Amazon. Um, and that's the problem. It's not that you buy something from Amazon once. It's that you buy everything from Amazon. Um, and so they control the whole ecosystem. Yeah, they even own Whole Foods now. So they control the whole food ecosystem. Like it's, it's dangerous, right? The food thing's going to vastly accelerate with the, with the Alexa proliferation. And as they start to scale that up, the, yeah. the, the big problem with food, and I've looked into it a lot, is essentially it's impossible to do food delivery well unless you can do everything. Because if I have half of your grocery cart you still have to go to the grocery store for the other half. So I didn't save you any time. You have to get almost everything. Now they can do almost everything. So as now, you know, I, I mean, as someone who does like it, I, I, I don't know that that's exactly true because there are people like I know some friends of mine who will use like Instacart or any of those for anything that they have to go into any aisle for. And so the only thing they go into the grocery store for is their fruits and vegetables and their milk. And everything else that's in the middle of the store where you have to kind of go through the aisles, they just skip that entirely. So that is faster. I mean, if you just go to one part of the store and leave, that's faster than going through every aisle back and forth to buy the pasta, to buy the ketchup, to buy the... But that's like the 5 to 10% change. So people won't change for something unless it's a 5 to 10x improvement, not a 5 to 10% improvement. That's, yeah, that's, I that's that, I find that it saves. No, you're right about that. I find that it saves me a lot of time because it takes a long time to go through those aisles and look for like... There's always that one thing. It's like, where the hell do they keep the salt? Okay, that takes me like 10 minutes, right? So like if my entire grocery trip was 40 minutes, 
now it took me 10 minutes because I just went to buy the fruits and vegetables and I never had to search for salt. I didn't have to search for ketchup. I didn't have to figure out, you know, like that stuff you don't buy all the time. It takes a long time to find. You can always see where the tomatoes are. Like that's fast. You go in, you buy the tomatoes, you leave. Like, you know what I mean? Like the overall trip gets reduced significantly if you don't have to look for stuff. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting future either way. I see a combination of Alexa in the kitchen. Hey, Alexa, let's have chicken noodle soup tonight or tomorrow combined with like a Pinterest type. Here's the different ones I like. Here's all my recipes and just things happening and flowing seamlessly from Whole Foods, Amazon. But it's a, it's a scary monopoly. The government can't really touch very well based off of the monopoly laws. I mean, it took them, here's the perfect example. It took the government forever to figure out how to actually make any sales tax off of all the stuff that was being sold on Amazon, right? I think it was like a decade that Amazon was selling the same products as the retail store with no sales tax. So immediately they had a 6% or 7% or 8% or whatever your sales tax is in your state. They had a discount to buy it online. So people would go and buy a TV from Amazon because they're like, look, I'll save 8% right off the bat because I don't have to pay sales tax. Such an unfair advantage. And not only that, then it's also an anti-monopoly according to US law because the price is better for consumers. Yeah, yeah. Right. It's uh yeah, it's a little bit of a shit show. What uh what let's go further out predictions. You always do the year off ones. Let's do ten years out. What are what are two or three trends that you're excited or think will come to pass? There's one that I'm paying a lot of attention to, which is the shift of how we see gender and the move away from dual gender identities. So it's not male and female anymore. It's like all of these different things are on a spectrum, right? Genders become like a question instead of a statement. It's like colors. Yeah. Um, and I think that playing that out a decade from now with kids who are growing up with that being common is going to really change a lot about how we see the world because y- you don't generally think about how much of our world is put into gendered terms. I mean, there used to be a boy aisle and a girl aisle in a toy store. Now it's like, is there even a toy store anymore? But even if there were, you know, or you go into like a, a Target, right? There were boys' clothes and girls' clothes. And now in Target, they have like mixed gender clothes. Um, so like, do they things? Yeah. So it's like boy or girl clothes, like at target, which is the most mainstream place you can go. Right. And so like, that's already happening now. So 10 years from now, just imagine how far that's going to go. I don't think we're going to be putting as many things as we currently do in gendered terms. I think that we're going to describe them in different ways that are not based on gender, uh, gender identity for them. Well, it comes back to the masculine feminine, feminine thing that you were talking about earlier. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you just think about like, even I'm a huge fan of the Olympics, right? And like every Olympic competition is like men's hockey. And, I mean, like men's ice hockey and, and women's, right? It's, like, it's, it's a separation. And like, what happened? Like, do we keep that for certain things? Do we not keep that? Like already you've got like um, American, uh, uh, American warrior, I forget what it's called. American Ninja Warrior. Yeah, 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 exactly. And like, you know, some of those competitions, it's not like a female category and a male category. Like the women compete with the men and then the finalists are like 10 men and maybe one woman, right? Uh, currently. But over time, like maybe that'll start to change because they're, but they're not competing on different uh, apparatus anymore. They're like on the same playing field, which is really interesting. It is. I think it's dangerous too. Do you want to know a fascinating stat? What sport would you say has the most head trauma? Well, the obvious answer would be American football, but that can't be right. So maybe soccer? Yes, but not boys soccer, girls soccer, because the thickness and strength of bones is weaker than it is in in men. So essentially 28% of high school girl uh, high-level soccer players will end up with some type of head trauma or TBI, 26% for football players. Hmm. And the the numbers aren't, I don't know the numbers off the top of my head for male soccer players, but it's a lower number. And it's because of the the differences inherently in, in strength and uh, the ability of the body to tolerate that kind of stuff. I think it's dangerous if you go too far down the rabbit hole of we're all the same when yeah, there think, are some big differences. I mean, you know, I think so too. And I think that there are differences, like especially like early on in childhood, right? I mean, there's a lot of people who are like, look, boys and girls are the same. But anyone who's a parent who has a boy and a girl knows that they're not the same. Like the way they think is not the same and trying to treat them exactly the same never works. Giving them equal opportunity, of course you want to do that. But that's not the same as Let's treat them exactly the same. Let's make them like the same stuff. That doesn't work. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting future either way. <laughs> I think we can agree on that. So I want to start to wrap things up. Before we tell people the best place to find you, what's one thing you'd want to leave people with? A quote, a call to action, it can be anything. 
Um, I would say uh, challenge yourself to be the most open-minded person in your circle. Because just by nature of the fact that you're listening to this, right, and watching this, you're already further along than a lot of your friends or your family will be in terms of being out there and consuming different types of media and being a curious mind and being an innovator in your circle. And I think a lot of times people don't give themselves permission to be the innovator in their circle. They think, oh, you know, I'm not the first one to buy this stuff. Like somebody else will try it first. I'll kind of follow later. Like I'm not the one who leads the charge. And I think that if, if there's one thing I could leave people with, it's to, to give them the uh, inspiration and motivation and, and maybe the support to be that person. Because we need people like that who can go and challenge the people that they know and say, you know what, like you're looking at this from only one perspective, like try and look at it from over here, like be more empathetic, see things from multiple perspectives, like be more understanding. Like we need people to challenge those around them to do that. Even though the meat from Taco Bell came out of a little liquid dispenser, they had a great slogan, think outside the box. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> Where's the best place for people to find you, Rohit? Uh, so my website, just rohitbargava.com, has got uh, videos in my speaking sections. So you can watch me uh, deliver some of this as a talk. You can get links to all of the different books. I've got the trend book, which comes out every year. I've got a guide to small business marketing that just came out. And then, of course, Lycanomics. And uh, I've got a self-help uh, career advice book called Always Eat Left-Handed. So there's lots of stuff. Uh, you can find all of that. And then I'm on all the social media platforms, usually with my, with my name um, as well. The left-handed one's dangerous. A lot of times people, especially in the Middle East, like to wipe left-handed. <laughs> in India too. So it was an interesting challenge for me as an author of a book like that, to call it that. But it was all based on me being at a networking event and learning that if I ate left-handed, my right hand was free to shake hands with people. And so it made me more approachable. So it's just like a life hack. So that's what that book's about. Very cool. Very cool. Well, thanks for coming on. And uh, hopefully this has been fun, guys. If it has, check out Rohit and his stuff. He, uh, he's got a lot of great talks. I've heard the books are great. I haven't personally read them, but I've heard they're good. <laughs> that's, uh, that's something. <laughs> that, that, that is something. I've heard they're good from good people. Thanks for, thanks for tuning in, guys. If this has been fun, disruptors.fm slash iTunes. Leave a review. It takes like 20 seconds. It's super helpful for us for getting incredible guests like Rohit and tons of other ridiculously outlandishly incredible, amazing people on here to dedicate an hour, an hour and a half to talking about the future for all of us. So yeah, thanks, Rohit. Thank you. Cheers, guys. If you want more of the Disruptors, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to disruptors.fm, where you'll find tons of audio and video interview stories with leaders in the fields of genetics, cryptocurrency, longevity, AI, space, VR, and much, much more. You can also follow me on Twitter at MattWardIO. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review on iTunes at disruptors.fm slash iTunes to help more people discover the podcast and help us make a bigger impact.